I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments. Those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices? Thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is John Couch. John is a pioneer of the American tech boom. He was hired by Steve Jobs as the 54th employee and became Apple's first vice president of education. He has worked personally with schools. He is an author of Rewiring Education. He owns a winery as well as a music production company. John Thank you so much for joining me. You just got done a big move. You're in the middle of a big move. How are things going for you? Things are going great. Um, yeah, I've moved all my family uh, down to San Luis Obispo, which is a beautiful college town. So it's enjoying it. Cool. Well, thanks for uh, joining me. I got most familiar with your work through your book, Rewiring Education. That book has been super helpful for me in better understanding education and the role of technology. And we're definitely going to get into that. But as I researched your work, I've learned that you're a man of many talents and a man of many interests. So we have a lot to cover. Uh, And one of those things is a winery. You started a winery in California, Santa Cruz Mountains. The winery looks exquisite and you use organic fruit, and you bottle by hand. What caused you to want to start this winery? Well, I am Italian, so it's somewhat, it's somewhat in my blood. And uh, I did spend my uh, junior year and high school years in France, and, and this was back in the early 60s, and we couldn't drink the wine. Uh, I mean, we couldn't drink the water, and so, you know, we drank wine for dinner. Now, people love drinking wine, you know. Uh, what is something that the common person, the common wine drinker, doesn't know in respect to wine making? Oh, my gosh. You know, I, I have an expert. Uh, my winemaker is Bill Brousseau, and, and I, I leave everything up to him. And, um, and, that, and that's been uh, uh, very positive because in our third year, our cab scored uh, 96 points. And uh, yeah, 96 points for the reserve and 93 points for the estate cab. And the 18, which we just bottled, he has told me is, is the best yet. So um, it's been fun. I'm, I'm doing some, you know, some unique things. I have what I call a hero line. And um, so I, I just released Waz Chardonnay, um, where I, I worked with Waz to 
tasting different uh, grape varietals, and uh, we we put something together that he liked, and uh, he's uh, signing signing bottles, and uh, uh, twenty dollars of every bottle goes to uh, uh, Jewel, the, the Singers Foundation, inspiring children, and uh, so it's fun, and I will be bottling Jewel's Pinot uh, this this June. And and the same thing, twenty dollars a bottle will go towards her foundation. Oh, that's wonderful! And congratulations on the high scores. What what do you think? I mean, I know it's probably a number of different factors that went into that, uh, you know, high score for for your wine. Is it the grapes? Is it the making? What what are some of the most important features that allowed you to get there? Well, I think it's a combination of three or four things, maybe even mm-hmm. more. One, a winemaker who knows what they're doing. Uh, yeah. Two, uh, I happen to be in in a great area for Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, mm-hmm. The the soils are all clay, and and stresses the grapes out uh, somewhat. It makes a great cab. And mm-hmm. and and third or fourth, we it's all organic. We yeah. hand prune everything. Uh, we drop fruit uh, to maintain the highest quality, and uh, we. We only use, you know, the best French oak barrels, and mm. we only use them for two years at the most. Okay. Whereas most wineries will use them, you know, three or three or four years. And I think that's, I think it's paid off, and that's why we're getting the high scores in the nineties. Congrats, and it's great that you're working together with with some of these other people too to to bring about awareness and uh, and bring some money to these to these other great causes. That that's exciting. Um, you also have, like I mentioned in the introduction, you also have a music production company uh, called Eden Inspirations. Can you tell us a bit about Eden Inspirations? Yeah, sure. It's um, I, I'm laughing when you call it a music production company, but I I guess I guess that's what it is. Um, but I, you know, but when I went to grad school, they told me unless you were profitable, you didn't have a business. So, uh, and there, and this is this is not for profit. I I went through a, a a surprise divorce about five years ago that that really shook me, and um, I I couldn't sleep that well, and so I started to get up early in the morning, and just started reading and journaling, and uh, I actually pulled my first song trusted me from the journal and found a young man in, in, uh, in Hollywood who could play the piano. And, and we, re- we actually recorded it with just the piano and I recorded it as well in Nashville with a full band, but we liked the piano the best. And that was probably the first of 40 songs I've written, um, in that time. And, uh, we have three CDs out and the fourth one coming out, uh, probably this this summer, and it's what's been fun is finding talent. So, for instance, when I was in Nairobi visiting a school, this young girl sang one of my songs, and I asked her very simply, "Would you would you like to you know would can I create a song for you, and would you like to sing it?" And she she did, and part of the song is actually in Swahili, and it's really got a great beat, and so. It's really just uh, showcasing the talent that that our youngsters have, um, and so we'll do all the recording and uh, and printing the CDs and putting it up both on in Apple Music and, and Spotify. And uh, I think we have now our music has now been heard in seventy three countries, 
And uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. When I was in China last year for my book, which was the number one uh, selling education book in China, uh, I handed out some of my CDs. And, uh, you know, I got responses by some of the young young youngsters that were, you know, on the PR tour that when they listen to the music, it's the only time they have peace in China. So it's been it's been interesting just to, to share my journey and um, and see and you know and look I'm an engineer I'm a computer scientist right I mean what do I know about music but it's it's remarkable what what you can do when you set a time you know set aside the time and uh, and get the and you know, remove the cacophony of all of the sounds of the world and just you know think and try to come from your heart and share. Yeah, now your love of music, was that there throughout your whole life or is this something that came more recently when you were talking about starting that journaling process? You know, look, man, I'm a, I'm a child of the 60s, you know. Uh, the, the Doors, Jefferson Airplane, the Beatles. I mean, you know, you, 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 couldn't, you couldn't survive in the 60s if you weren't into music. You know, and, and, and Apple was really, and Steve was really big on music and music was always, you know, part of Apple's DNA as well. So, um, you know, it's, it's been fun. Um, I wish I could sing. Um, I can tell you that that, that, uh, um, passion or motivation was destroyed in the, in the first grade <laughs> when, <laughs> when the music teacher asked me, asked for a volunteer to come up in the front of the room and, and and sing this and uh, nobody in the class would volunteer so I said okay what the heck I'll do it and of course everybody in the class laughed and uh, you know that was my last time I ever sang hmm. <clears throat> tells you yeah. tells you the impact our 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 education the negative side of that our education have on a on a youngster without a doubt yeah um, you have a, you have a number of powerful lyrics on your website and. And uh, the songs, you know, as I was as I was listening to them, uh, one of the the lines or the series of lines that really caught me and um, sort of brought my attention um, was these: Four years ago, God sent me a love letter in a black envelope. The love of my life and I parted ways. I descended into the valley of sorrow. I was devastated and could not sleep. In the darkness of the early mornings, I prayed for understanding. Um, what was the process of being able to get those powerful lines on paper? Well, you know, like I said, first and foremost, um, seeking a quiet place, hmm. uh, a place of solitude. Um, some some people refer to it as a secret place, hmm. um, where the where you allow uh, the spirit that's within you to come to the surface and speak. And, and basically listen and hear yeah. uh, words that after you're finished, you look at it and you go, wow, that came from me, you know, mm. unbelievable. Um, and, um, you know, it was, uh, I, I was blindsided, thought that, you know, my life was, was, you know, was, was perfect and, and in all ways and set for the rest of my life. And, you know, you get that, <laughs> you know, God, that, you know, that that came from a, a pastor friend of mine who, whose sermon was about how how God seeks us, hmm. you know. And, and Bill Bright once told me that religion is man's search 
for God, but Christianity is God's search for man. But hmm. you've got to, you've got to, you got to listen. You got to be quiet and hear Him. And so I've done that now for five years. I've posted on on Facebook on Eden Inspirations CA for Cal, and hmm. uh, I think I've now posted one thousand days in a row. Oh wow! And and you know, and at the same time, we finished uh, rewiring education, and I just finished a, a new book. That's going to print and and next week, and it'll be out in May. Called um, uh, my life, my life at Apple and the Steve that I knew, and it tells an entirely different story of Steve than what you've heard in the past. That's great. We're gonna have to have you back on when that releases. So you can, we can talk <laughs> about that. It was fun. It was fun doing that. It was fun, you know, going back to the early days and when Steve was twenty one and I was twenty nine, and mm-hmm. you know, the early days of Apple and you know, everybody telling us we would fail and just, you know, to, to go back and relive that. And now to see, you know, where Apple is, you know, it's unbelievable journey, unbelievable journey. Well, let's go back in time a bit. I don't want to harp too much on that because that's probably a you know, separate conversation. But you were hired as the 54th employee at Apple by Steve Jobs in Rewiring Education. You tell the story about how Steve Jobs persuaded you to leave Hewlett Packard for his new startup tech company. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, you know, the way it started was my boss at Hewlett Packard was hired by Apple to be their VP of engineering. And in the early Apple days, uh, Apple didn't have a lot of software. They had mm-hmm. the basic interpreter that Waz wrote, right, by hand, one line at a time. Mm. In hexadecimal, <laughs> and they had they had two small utilities: a data mover that would move data from a cassette recorder into memory, and one other utility. And so uh, they and I, you know, I told them when they interviewed me that you know you guys you got you got to get your software act together mm. because you know. And then finally, Steve said, you know, he says I think I've sold an Apple II to everybody in the world that, that can program in basic or assembly language. You know, I need, I need a new environment that, mm-hmm. that, that can empower the non-programmer. And uh, that's exactly what I, my PhD work was going to be on in and at Berkeley. But, you know, Steve was asking me to leave Hewlett Packard where I was being, where I was one a candidate for my boss's job. <laughs> and I was making probably $30,000, $35,000 more than Steve was offering. Hmm. Because at that time in Apple, uh, the, the maximum salary was forty k, okay. And a reason for that was because Steve wanted to, to recruit people who shared his vision and hmm. not who simply saw it as a, you know, a financial opportunity. You know, and uh, he was asking me to, also to go from managing about 140 people in the lab to managing no one <laughs> mm. and just working with, with, with himself. And so I met Steve. I, I shared his vision. I knew, I, having been you know, one of the first 50 computer scientists out of Berkeley in 69 and 72, mm. you know, that the personal computer was, was, it was real, you know, yeah. and not just a game machine that a lot of the traditional companies thought, like HP and DEC at the time. 
And so I just told him, I, you know, I, I need to think about it because uh, it was a family decision, not just mine. And, uh, <laughs> and then typical Steve shows up at my house on a Friday night, I believe, <laughs> and, oh, and, and comes into my kitchen, puts an apple too in the kitchen table and tells my four-year-old son, Christopher, you can have this if your dad comes to work for me. <laughs> you know, and so the TV didn't go on the whole weekend, and and uh, Chris got on that you know mental bicycle and mm. rode and went places that I didn't think a four year old was capable of doing it. Interesting. Uh, but then on Sunday night, I said, you know, Chris, don't get too attached to this because I may have to return it. And he goes, Why, Dad? I said, Well, if I don't take the job, I need to bring it back tomorrow. And he looked at me and he said, well, just say yes, Dad. <laughs> but, uh, he, he went on to be a computer science major at Penn. And his, his daughter, my granddaughter, is a computer science major at uh, Baylor. So oh. we, may, we may be the first three-generation computer science family. There have been many books, you know, obviously written about Steve Jobs. You have a book coming out. Again, this is more for another conversation, but I wanted to get a little taste. What was a characteristic, you know, in your interaction with uh, Steve Jobs and your friendship there that resonated most with you? You know, the two words that come to mind for me, one was complexity. Hmm. You know, Steve was a very complex person, very driven person. Probably, you know, he told me one time in our early in our early uh, days, you know, he goes, you know, John, he goes, I want to give something back. He goes, you know, the car that I drive, the clothes that I wear, the food that I eat are all through someone else's accomplishments. I want to give something back. And that something back was, you know, to make technology improve, empower us as individuals. Hmm. And then I think the other thing for me was his heart. You know, I mean, he, he, he had a great heart, particularly for, for younger kids. You know, I don't think he was, I think, I think he felt that, you know, by the time they got to college, you know, <laughs> it was a lost cause. But, you know, <laughs> the elementary kids were, he loved them. And, mm. I mean, we gave many, many computers to, to kids that rode in on in pencil on, <laughs> on, yeah. on, on lined paper. You know, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, a lot of that's in, in the book because there's the, the book's stories. And uh, Steve was a storyteller, uh, you know, an excellent storyteller. And I, I like to say that, you know, he, his words were colorful. His words painted pictures for you, whether it was the mental bicycle, you know, or giving something back. Um, so... I kind of tell the story, and I, I um, it's interesting because, you know, the words that hit me the most in his commencement speech at Stanford was when he said, you can only connect the dots looking forward. Hmm. And so I, I wrote the book with basically on that theme by connecting my dots in the past that led me to Steve. Hmm. And then the dots, connecting the dots at, at Apple. And, and you know, after I left Apple in, in uh, end of 83, uh, I spent 10 years uh, in the ministry with a, with a failed, failing Christian school in North County, San Diego. Yeah. And so I was, able to, I was able to see, you know, what 
the real problem was in, in, in education. I know. And uh, it's kind of ironic because I didn't realize it at the time, but by going back and looking at the dots, Steve told me when I told him I was leaving Apple, he goes, you know, that's okay. He says, let's take something, take what you've learned in business and apply it to education and then come back after you've learned the education market, if you want to call it that, and share it with Apple. Hmm. So he knew 10 years, 15 years before I, <laughs> before I did that I would be back at Apple. You know, that's the Steve that I know. Yeah, and that really stuck out to me, you know, reading about your work and, and your life. You left Apple to go work in that public school, like you just said. What was it that pulled you to go do that work? Okay, uh, first, it, it wasn't a public school. It was a private school. Oh, it was a private and, school. Uh, okay. Yeah. And, you know, look, I, re I retired at 36 years old. And, you know, and I had no idea... Uh, what I was to do. Hmm. And I just knew that I couldn't justify my work ethic, if you want to call it an ethic. It was more, it owned me. Uh, hmm. And the time that we put in in the early Apple days um, to justify, you know, I used, I used to justify it. Well, I've got to, I got to save for college educations for my four kids. I've got to be, I'm responsible for the food that's on the table, you know, uh, and all of that. And I finally got to the point, you know, with the Apple success, that I couldn't justify my, my work alcoholism, you know? Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I came to, I came to the Christianity during that time, even though I grew up in an Irish Catholic, you know, family and I knew, I knew about God, but I, hmm. I didn't know him personally. So I, Spent five years studying the word. And, uh, you know, I just prayed, you know, you know, Lord, what's what's your will for my life? And he gave me the parable of the Good Samaritan, which was basically to meet the, the, need, the present need. Hmm. And I had been on, you know, 700 Club twice and a bunch of shows and came to the realization that I was nothing but a Christian cheerleader for people to raise money because of this, you know, crazy, iconic, you know, tech guy uh, becoming a Christian. Hmm. And so it turned out that the need happened to be this school where we were, we were interviewing for, to send our kids. And they were $300,000 in debt, losing $30,000 plus a month, and had a 30-day lease on their property. Hmm. And... Uh, and I go, well, that's, there's certainly a need there, but, you know, I don't want to fail. <laughs> and and, I, and I was, uh, they asked me to go on their board, and, and I realized they had no vision. Mm. Uh, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't articulate their, 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 their reason for existence, much less their mission, what mm. they were accomplishing, trying to accomplish to do. So I offered to write them a, a business plan. And it was in the process of writing that business plan, which was three five-year phases. And, you know, and I knew enough about technology and knew where technology was going, you know, I mean, way ahead of, of anybody else. I mean, uh, I, I donated the first Apple IIs to a school in, in, in Los Gatos. 
And so I, and I watched what these kids could do, particularly what my own son could do, right? And so I knew that that, that technology was going to be a part of, of education going forward. But I also realized that um, there was a big, a big danger, and I think I, I say this in my book, uh, I, I donated those first Apple IIs to the school they didn't know what to do with them, so they cleaned out the janitorial closet, yeah. <laughs> and they told the kids, you know, free time. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the year, when the kids were on a survey asked to pick their favorite class, they picked the janitorial closet. You know? <laughs> and then, then, and then the eighth grades gave the school four more, and now all of a sudden they didn't fit in the janitorial closet. Mm-hmm. So they decided that they would make it an official, you know, program in the school. Mm-hmm. And I saw the first exam. They hired some mo- somebody's mom from IBM. And the first exam was the front page of the cover of the manual. And they had simply left certain words blank, and the kids had to fill them out. And I wrote a paper that, uh, uh, that saying that, you know, Steve's vision was that technology was a mental bicycle, mm-hmm. an amplifier for one's mind and creativity, not to mm-hmm. take us where we've already been but to allow us to explore, to create, wow. uh, to change. And I said, if we're not careful, the education system is going to take his mental bicycle and turn it into an exercise cycle, which mm. is boring and doesn't go anywhere. Hmm. And I think there's still a lot of truth to that today, yep. even. Uh, because people, schools have bought technology so they could claim they, they have technology, but they've never changed the pedagogy in the classroom, hmm. uh, you know, such that that technology would allow them to do something other than they're already doing. Hmm. And, uh, and that, that was the, you know, the, the start of CBL, which was basically said the, the pedagogy is not going to be based on memorization. It's going to be based on one, something that's relevant yeah. because the kids want something real, <clears throat> right? Uh, where they, they no longer are, need to be the recipient of, of static content. They have the tools and the software now to be able to create their own unique content, including music and video yeah. and podcasts and everything. And b- based on Vygorsky's work, that kids learn through collaboration. Now, collaboration was called cheating when I went to school. <laughs> right? and, but that's how they learn. And finally, they want something challenging, you know? And so that, that formed the framework for CBL and really for the main message in, in, in um, rewiring education. Yeah. And, I, you know, an example that I use, which I, I used, which helped people understand challenge-based uh, learning was first and foremost, challenge-based learning required technology. Every student needed to have their own studio, if you will, right? Um, and so I use the example of fourth grade history, California history in fourth grade. In the California, everybody, every student in fourth grade has to take California history. Mm-hmm. And there's very little in the book because the publishers basically, you know, they'll put just enough to get it, the book accepted, adopted. Yeah. Um, and so most teachers focus on missions. Nothing about um, presidios or, you know, the, the 
the culture between the Mexicans and Americans at the time, you know, the ranches that were owned by Mexicans, um, and they're asked to build a mission. And so most kids will build their mission out of cigarette cubes or Legos. And I, hmm. and I say, if you see anything else, you know that the parents helped build it, unless it was in Minecraft. Then you knew the kids did it. <laughs> um, and so the challenge was, instead of building a mission, it was pretender um, William Randolph Hearst. You know, the first thing the kids are going to say, well, you know, Mr. Couch, who's William Randolph Hearst? And I said, well, look, you needed to go discover that. Yeah. Right? And so they, they discover that he was, you know, the owner of the San Francisco Examiner and uh, that he had, he had built a, a castle, a Hearst, his Hearst Castle, and he had integrated, you know, animals and artwork and everything from all over the world. And so you're now you're you're getting outside of just California, and you're you're you know you're you're seeing history uh, hmm. in this in this class, and yeah. uh, that he he was friends with Hollywood, uh, and and he would throw dinner parties every weekend for the elite in Hollywood. They'd come down on a train, and so I said you're and then you'd group the kids in groups of four, and say okay your challenge is you're going to throw a dinner party for those individuals that made the biggest impact on California history. Who would you invite and what would the seating chart look like? You know, and the yep. four kids go after it yeah. and they're, you know, they're, they're collaborative, they're creative. It's a real mm -hmm. example for them. It's challenging. And, and, you know, they have discussions. So our kids are capable of much more. Yeah. You know, until until you put so much concrete on on their brains for memorizing facts mm -hmm. that they can no longer think outside the box. Yeah, I really appreciate those examples. Um, and those are examples, any of our listeners that are educators, you can take those, take those into your classroom, take those into your school. We took the uh, your example with the dinner party in um, some different lessons, and then we had the students act out the different people, the different dialogues, and they recorded the conversations, and then they posted them along the dinner table so you could click on it and hear what this person would say to this person and that person would say to that person and the people you know the students recorded the voices uh, as yeah, they thought that, yeah. that they were so we yeah we definitely ran with that the classroom yeah. has to be active it can't yes. be passive yes yeah. yeah totally agree now in my experience right i'd love your emphasis on challenge-based learning i'm all on board i think it's great but a lot of people are more familiar with project-based learning. And some of our listeners might be thinking now, yeah. are they the same? Are they different? Can you give us a little bit of a distinction between yeah. the two and what you're trying to get at with this challenge-based learning? I can plug the book because it's in there, but uh, project-based learning, two things come to my mind is first and foremost, you don't need technology for project-based learning. Gotcha. Okay? You do for challenge-based learning because you're forming a, a net collaborative network of the kids maybe working at different times in different places. Hmm. Uh, secondly, in project-based learning, the teacher hands out the project, which may not be relevant to, to every student. In challenge-based learning, it's the class that chooses the challenge. Hmm. And it's automatically relative to the you know, majority of the students. Hmm. And you know, so the technology and the fact that they get to pick the challenge. I visit one school in Varmont, which has the best curriculum I've ever seen. It's a challenge-based learning 
from three years in kindergarten all the way up to high school oh, wow. and uh, visited them. They were, their challenge was on um, uh, energy. And the, the eighth grade kids built a solar-powered go-kart. Sixth grade students built a solar-powered backpack that your iPhone and your iPad could plug in. Mm. And the first grade students built a solar-powered oven. Now, I went to the, to, my, to the school that I spent 10 years at, right? Their entrepreneurial week was all about selling hamburgers and pizza and, and who could make the most money <laughs> rather than who could be the most creative. You know? <laughs> so there's, there's your two extremes, right? Mm. Um, you know, and it really just gets, it really gets down to leadership. John, you, you highlighted one of the important principles of challenge-based learning and your philosophy of learning is, you know, give more responsibility to the student, allow them to pick, right? You're not forcing something down them. Why is that so important for our learning? I will tell you another story. One of the first one-to-ones that we ever did, you know, where every student got a, got a computer. Um, I asked this sixth-grade girl... I said, if you could tell your administrator one thing, what would it be? And her answer was very, very, very simple. Trust us. Hmm. Trust us. Because people are naturally, in, in, you know, inquisitive. They, they, yeah. they're na- you know, they, they want to learn, but hmm. they don't want to do seven pages of long division arithmetic. Hmm. You know, they want to know, is this even... You know, am I ever going to use this? Hmm. You know, um, and you know, there's there's probably a lot that we're teaching now that people will never use. Yeah. Um, and there's probably a lot of things that we could be teaching, like you know, finance, mm-hmm. that people need need to learn. Um, John, you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to uh, circle back on. You said. You know, technology, sort of the vision for it at Apple and your vision is, you know, a mental bicycle. But then you said, oftentimes we turn it into a boring exercise bike. How do we do that? And I guess what I'm trying to get at is how do we do that? How do we turn it into a boring exercise bike? And what are some ways to fight against that, right? To keep that, to build creativity. Here's the challenge. You got to be creative, Mm. okay? And I, you know, I don't want to, you know hurt anybody's feelings, but, you know, I taught at Berkeley and it takes a lot of time and a lot of hard work to be creative in the classroom. Um, and, um, you know, people have estimated that, that maybe only 10% of our teachers, you know, are creative and have the ability to, you know, and in those that are, are probably the best teachers you've ever had. Because they make everything exciting, right? Whether whether it's history and like you were saying, some of the things that you were doing. Um, so I think that's really the key, and I think we have it backwards. Because you know, I run a I ran a school for ten years, and what you'll see is you'll 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 see a teacher, you know, one class a teacher is creative, and what she's got in the back of the classroom is a entirely is an entirely shopping uh, center mark. And the kids are learning their math and they're learning, you know, different things by embedding themselves in the shopping experience. The other teacher is simply saying, 
memorize these verbs, okay? And, you know, there's not much engagement in memorizing verbs. Or later on, memorize the periodic chart. Well, you know, first of all, they've probably never, never even seen the element, okay? <laughs> so I, there's, we built a coffee table with mm. all the elements in it, okay? That's cool. And then you, you issue a challenge uh, uh, around that that forces them to discover the answers rather than us sort of, you know, memorizing the answers, giving them the answers. Hmm. Uh, you know, in, in my book, I talked about at what point in my education life did I change from memorizing? And that was in my junior year as a physics major uh, when there was only one problem on the final exam, and that was described, yeah. you know, the motion of a spinning top in free space. And it had never been covered in the book or a lecture or by the teaching assistant. And I saw a lot of really smart people panic, <laughs> including <laughs> myself. And that's when I realized, you know what? I can't memorize my way through college. Mm. And I'm not going to be able to memorize my way through, through a job. You know, I mean, that was Steve's mm. first challenge to me. He goes, you got to build a computer that anyone can use. Yeah. You know, and I go, yeah, that's great, Steve. Uh, where's the book? Yeah, there is no book. There is no book. Well, can you point me to a faculty member or some research where this is going on? He goes, no, that's why I'm hiring you. You know, and I was scared, you know, and I guarantee you the kids are more, more motivated when, you know, when they're, it's like game theory, right? You have these levels and you, you know, you're motivated to get to the next level. John, it's, it's interesting that you highlight uh, creativity, you know, as a core feature. How do we build that within teachers, within the educational environment, within schools, you know? Okay. Well, guess what? <laughs> it was already built. Mm. It was already built. It was built by um, Frederick Froebels, who was all about creativity. Yeah. And he, he saw children as being creative beings you know, created by a creative God. And so everything in kindergarten was about creativity. They would do a lot of stuff outside in nature. And then he, he created what he called the Froebel gifts. And they're, you know, I hate to minimize it, but it's more than blocks, it's strings. It's, in fact, it's still, they're still used at the Graduate School of Architecture at MIT. Frank Lloyd Wright was a big fan of the Froebel blocks in his designs. And so these kids would come back from nature and then they'd build something with these, with these, what he called a gift. Unfortunately, when, when kindergarten came over the US, we basically pushed the pedagogy in the first grade, which was about reading, down into kindergarten and did away with the creativity, right? And then we lost, you know, in 1912, when uh, Rockefeller funded the the education board, we lost the battle for creativity because they felt at that time they, what they needed the most was cogs for the industrial revolution. You know, people that would not draw outside the lines, would not think about anything other than, you know, I put this here, I put this here, I put this here. And um, fundamentally our education system with the exception of maybe some Montessori and some other, you know, 
pocket environments, our public education system is is like that. So if if creativity was there and it's at the core of who we are as people, and then it was sort of taken away through this industrialized model, what have you seen to be helpful to bring creativity back into the school system? Well, probably the best example of a, of a profession and creativity, you know, outside the arts is chefs. You know, I mean, the chefs create recipes. Yeah, we we follow them. Hmm. Right. And I think that's that's the biggest challenge we have right now is, you know, I've got a friend of mine, uh, Wonder World, Wonderful World of Science, where he's, you know, he doesn't have a, a, he doesn't have a curriculum for eight years, but he's got examples of, of things that he really he makes you look at, at the world uh, in an entirely different light. You know, it's like, how does, how does a bumblebee fly? When I first went to Apple, Mike Markula, you know, told me, um, used to refer to a huge challenge as trying to, trying to move a 20,000-pound marshmallow. No matter how hard you push, you know, it doesn't move. And, and the, only, the only way of getting it to really move is one bite at a time. So what I was hoping to do with rewiring education was to bring to the surface to parents such that they would take one bite at a time because I don't believe education is going to change top down. I believe it's going to change bottom up as we demand more. And, uh, and I mean, even, you know, I spent two hours with the former uh, secretary of education who was really big on, on uh, charter schools. And my point to her was, look, if the charter school isn't doing anything different than what the public school is different and is not changing the pedagogy, mm-hmm. then where's the change? Yeah. You know? Yeah, this reminds me of something you bring up in your book. Uh, the inventor, you know, people thought was going to change the world. And the inventor was Thomas Edison. The year was 1911. The invention was the educational film. It was basically a recording um, whose impact faded quickly. And it got me thinking, and I want to ask you this, and I know – we're getting uh, to the end of our conversation here. I do have a bunch more questions, but I'm going to hold off. I'm going to practice some self-control. But I'm wondering from your perspective, what is an invention today that reminds you of Edison's educational film? I, you know, I think they, and they have been for 20 years, thinking that technology would change education. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's not just about the technology. Mm-hmm. It's about content in context. Interesting. Right? And, and see... What what we do in the schools is we're distributors of content. It's like watching TV. It's a distribution mm. of content. It's it's not in a context. It's not interactive. Uh, the kids aren't part of the creation uh, process. Uh, they they're they're still called to sit passively. Mm. You know there was there was a there was an old cartoonist in France that drew a cartoon with all the kids still sitting in rows, okay, with, with, with a help, uh, let's say, you know, earplugs, ear, ear okay? Yeah. Uh, and, a, and a little wire coming out of their earplugs going over to where the teacher is dropping the books in a kind of a vacuum, right? And this, this vacuum is supposed to convert these books into digital waves and go right into the kids' heads. 
Okay, well, <laughs> that was their vision of the future of education. I mean, almost every change, I mean, almost every change in education, even starting with the pencil, was this was you know put down by 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 the educators, hmm. you know, you know the when first books came out. Oh no, you know, because they they were used to the monks, right? They would read they'd read the they'd read the scriptures and the monks would write them down, and that was education. You know, that's why I believe in in internships and in, uh, blended learning. Um, what um, Mallory is doing at the Oxford Day School, Oxford Day Academy in East Palo Alto. It's not, it's not easy. You know, it's a 20,000 pound marshmallow. Yeah, and I really appreciate, you know, you as a computer scientist, you at the forefront of many, you know, innovations, right? And, and you love technology still today. You talk about the importance of it, but you also have this other side where you're talking about context, content, creation, and we need to focus on those because technology in and of itself isn't going to get the job done. Am I accurate in, in sort of saying that? Yeah. The, yeah. I mean, I think there's a, you know, there's a crossroads between psych- psychology and, and technology. Hmm. I, I heard this teacher one day say, I, and she was teaching first grade. She says, I told those kids that this classroom is my home and in my home, you respect me. And I thought, Oh my gosh, <laughs> but she really but she really should have said, this is your home. And I respect each and every one of your unique talents. Interesting. You know, and let's find out who's a, who's a, a semantic learner, who's a visual learner, mm. who's a kinetic learner, who's an audio learner, and what combinations. And let me, and let me put together with you challenges. And the teachers that have the passion are great teachers. And I can I can I can t- I can name the people that you know two or three teachers that had passion and brought learning you know made it relevant. John, that's sad that you can only name two or three. That's, that's I know. not good. Um, <laughs> well, that's the nature of it, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh man! Yeah, welcome to our education system, huh? Yeah. And then you walk out of that and you meet Steve Jobs, and he goes. I want you to build me something that no one's built. I want to pause this podcast for a moment to let you know about another great podcast. Hey, everyone. My name is Mike Dunn, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Rethinking EDU. Our podcast is a roundtable discussion about education possibility. We talk with professionals from around the country who are doing groundbreaking work reimagining and remaking schools. Come check us out at rethinkingedu.co or wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to the show. John, this has been so great. As we wind things down today, uh, who do you want to give a shout out to? You know, my team over the years, um, they were blazers. Um, you know, they trusted me uh, in the early Apple days to, you know, on this crazy idea of, of the mouse and the cut and paste paradigm. And, and then my education team, when I came back, uh, incredible, incredible uh, teachers and Apple distinguished educators. And then, and then probably the one that, you know, that I respect the most is Marco Torres. You know, uh, I did not know Marco Torres 
But when Steve hired me back in 2002 to run education, he said to me, he goes, John, there's only one person you need to meet in education, and that's Marco Torres. And he was right. Marco lived it, lived it in the classroom, probably the most creative individual I've ever met. Um, his students have formed their own, their own companies. Um, he's buried 16 of his students in, in probably the worst school district in California. And yet he has a passion and a sense of humor and a heart for kids that um, I wish all school could have a teacher like Marco. Time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? I think it's really simple. I think it's three words, and it's how I ended my book. Be mm. the change. Be the okay. change. John, thank you so much for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. To those listening, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Diving Deep EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire. <laughs>